Two-minute drill. On Sunday, SpaceX conducted a mission in which the Falcon 9 rocket did what? Docked, landed, conducted its first man launch, or broke in flight. Marine Corps University. This belong to anybody? Dallas? <laughs> Drill. How many times has the Senate convened an impeachment trial since January 1st, 1999? Since January 1st, 1999. One, two, three, or four. All right, men. Good morning. Do we have anyone new here who hasn't been to base camp? Before? Okay, you know me, I'm Mike Helvey. I will run through the announcements and introduce our Oscar Dallas. A few things, keep an eye on the slides, grief share. We have the mentoring program. If you're interested in the mentoring program, either mentoring or participating on the other side of it, mentoring men at BurkeCommunity.com. Not difficult. Physical needs. We need folks that are able and competent at swinging a hammer or using other tools of destruction. Physical needs at Burke Community. Got a singles Christmas. Huh. We are so looking forward to next December. Some multiple opportunities to get involved in serving at the church. Or being served in the church. Be in a life group. This one is all. There is a singles Bible study. A few changes on the road to Mike's slide. Just some notes from collecting points last week. If you're in table one, five, seven, or eight and have any questions about that, see Jack. Jack, pop up. See Jack. And there we are. One announcement slide I did not see that should have been in there was for the family ski and snowboard trip. February 1st, departing BCCM, Bruce, Bruce standing in the back, he's got some flyers with instructions on how to get to the electronic sign-up on the sign-up genius. See Bruce if you're interested in skiing, snowboarding, or hanging around with those who do. One more time, does this belong to anyone? It was just left out in the lobby. All right, I want to pray for Dallas real quick as um, he wanders up here and makes his way. Heavenly Father, we come before you and just ask your blessing on Dallas and on the guys here. We ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate the word and 
really help us connect to with one another in Jesus' name. Amen. Dallas Shaw. Okay, uh, we'll jump in. Okay, Ezra 3, 1 through 6, rebuilding the altar. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled into their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then son of Jehozadak and his fellow priests and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his associates began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then, in accordance with what is written, they, I can't really see that, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. On the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord through the foundation, or though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. When the builders laid the foundation of the temple, the priests in their vestments and with their trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with the cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they, gave th- they sang to the Lord, He is good, his love toward Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great praise to the Lord because the foundation of the Lord, of the house of the Lord, was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard from far away. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you that we get to study your word. I pray that it would move in our hearts. Lord, that we wouldn't just be people that listen to it and then we intellectually understand it, but we'd be people who practice it. Lord, that we'd be bold in practicing it and that we'd be seeking your face. Bless our time, bless my words, the meditations of our hearts. And Lord, let the conversations around our table be effectual for you. Lord, join us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, jumping in. So altering our lives. So this is a, kind of a concept. This is what jumped out to me in this, and it's not... Marine Corps spelling is, is deliberate. Okay, that's why I put the underline there. Ever spelled the word. <laughs> okay, so it's this idea of we come to the altar, or we have, we have this altered life, this life brought before the altar that also alters, that changes our life, okay? Now, I think there's a couple concepts with that, a couple key things that we see in this passage that point to that, and it's one of it is, is correct priorities. Key altering our life or bringing our life to the altar is the correct priority and also, I mean, it sounds like it should be obvious, but choosing the correct altar, okay? And then the last part is, what are the reactions that we see to people, men, when we alter our lives, when we bring it before the altar, right? Really, when we're saved, what are the different reactions that we see to ourselves? So jumping in, I borrowed this kind of idea of an altered life from a previous pastor, and he pointed out that Noah, that Abraham, that Isaac, you know, they were pretty quick early on in their lives, to build altars to God. You see them like, you know, Noah, as soon as he gets out of the ark, bam, builds an altar. 
You know, Abraham's building multiple altars. So is Isaac. But what he pointed out that was interesting, Jacob was like a late bloomer for the altar thing, right? He didn't do it until later in his life. Okay, and so in Genesis 35, uh, 1 through 10, it points out that then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God, to to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau, said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Jacob and all the people with him came to Bethel in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar. God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So what's interesting to me about this is that it's kind of amazing that first, only now, like this is pretty, pretty good distance into the story for Jacob. Only now does he tell his family to get rid of their idols, and purify themselves. Now, he, he'd been a child of promise from the long before he surrendered to the God of the promise, you know? And God had already appeared to Jacob. He had already blessed him with an immense fortune, a giant family. He'd already carried him safely to Haran and back, okay? But what's interesting, it's when Jacob alters his life, brings it to the altar, that God alters him. That's a strange, I think that's an important concept, because why? With us, God pursues us. He makes us children of the promise. He gives us the promise long before we accept it. He blesses us and protects us. When I was doing stupid stuff long before I got saved, right? But then something, the real change happens in our lives when what? Come to the altar. When we come to his son, and the crazy part is we put ourselves as living sacrifices, on the altar, like it says in Romans 12, 1, where it says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So concept of first, wanting to alter our lives, to bring our lives in front of the altar, to the altar, right? Now, how do we do it? I think that the, the Israelites give us a great model for how to do this in here. And the first one is the correct priority. To be fair, they're walking back into Jerusalem after being gone. Jerusalem is laying in rubble. They've got no temple. They could have started with different priorities of work. And as a military guy, to be honest with you, they could have started with the wall. They could have started with the altar, which they did. Or they could have started with the temple. And to be honest with you, I think there's a really great case to be made for any one of the three. Okay particularly the wall. To be honest with you, if it's Dallas, right, as, as a nasty, stinky coming in, and I'm surrounded by enemies, wall sounds good to me. Let's start with the defense, right? Why? In 930 BC, Solomon, sometime during his reign, introduces the worship of false gods into Israel. What effect does that have? By 722, the northern kingdom is carried into exile. They're utterly obliterated the Necherib and the Assyrians. 586 BC, Israel, or southern kingdom, Judah, is invaded the second time. First time in 605 BC, during this first set of exiles. And they're utterly wiped out. The city is leveled, the temple's destroyed. Then in 568 and 67 BC, the remnants of the Israelite army that, that got away from Nebuchadnezzar and the peasants that Nebuchadnezzar left behind, they disobey, disobey God again and disobey Jeremiah. And they flee to Egypt to escape war and famine. And what does God do? He sends the war and famine to Egypt after them. 
Okay? So then, what's even more amazing, and I'd, I'd missed it, but in 4, uh, 474 BC, that's the year that Haman orders the absolute destruction of all the Jews in the world in the book of Esther. Now, that's 30 years before they rebuild the, uh, the wall, and a significant period of time after they rebuild the altar and the temple. They've got some serious security problems. <laughs> These guys, I mean, we think that the, 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 the Jews have a challenge today in Israel. These guys have had a couple challenges in the past century leading into this. So they do have a reason to be afraid, but what do they do? You know, it's interesting. They start with the altar in 536 B.C., then they move to the temple. It takes them 20 other uh, messages in the following weeks we're going to get into. And only about, a, sorry, only about a century later, almost a century later, do they start on the wall. Now, what I was interested in is, is why did they do the altar first? And some of these Christian authors point out that it was relatively quick and easy to do. So we get overwhelmed by this task of, you know, you're told to go out, you're told to go out and pray with your family, right? And we're like, oh my God, the task is too big. How do I get started? Do something easy. Start with the easy thing. Put a bunch of rocks, set a fire. As I understand it, the altar is a giant barbecue pit, basically, right? Start with the altar. It's easy, okay? Next. That's the place where sin was dealt with. Priests went into the temple, but the common man, we, us, we met God. We meet God at the altar where he deals with our sin, where our sacrifice. More than that, it was an act of obedience. They did it. Why? Because they were told to do it, right? This guy, Adney, points out that the full establishment of services precedes the building of the temple. And he points out this is a big concept. The worship itself is felt to be more important than the house in which it's celebrated. And another guy named McLaren, he points out that there cannot be a temple without an altar, but there may be an altar without a temple that gets men at the place of sacrifice, even though there be no house for his name. And I think that's, that's powerful for me because when there is no temple today. The temple is in me. God resides in me and you, right? That's a big thing, is altering our lives. Bringing our lives in front of the altar is a critical part for him living in us, right? So when I'm afraid, what saddens me is that Dallas tends to prioritize the wall. I tend to, to seek protection and provision, my own protection and provision first. I'm going to come up with my solution. Then, time permitting, I will seek God and give him a list of demands. When I can get time, then I'm going to trust him, right? Then I'm going to be obedient and deal with sin. But again, in that, that's the order Dallas tends to, to do stuff. But what's the order that we're recommended to do it? We're told to pursue him first, to trust him first. Then, in trusting him, he says, let him know. He says, pray, give him what it is that we need, and then... The big one is trust him for his protection, for his provision. And as this guy McLaren points out, the ruined, wallless Jerusalem was better guarded for a century, almost a century, with no wall than if the walls had been rebuilt. So we get the correct priority. The next part is choosing the correct altar. Now this sounds like, well, how could, seriously, you only have one God for one country, for one nation, Israel. How hard could it be? There can be no hedging. There is no diversification in this faith, in this religion. 
So, was Israel and Judah, were they devastated and exiled because they weren't religious enough? No, I mean, we've got this. The Jews weren't exiled because they weren't religious enough. They were very religious, and that's not a compliment. Paul told the Athenians, you guys are very religious. They're worshiping gods they don't even have names for. Kudos to you, right? Acts 17 talks about that. They got plenty of them. And I'm not sure that anybody did polytheism better than the Jews, right? Except for us. I think we're, we're trying to give them a run for our money with, you know, the, what is it, the, the Washington National Cathedral. We got some coexist going on, right? What's amazing about this is they didn't stop worshiping God. Well, that sounds pretty good, right? What they did was they worship false gods, not just into Israel, into the temple, That's the amazing part to me. That's the shocking part to me, right? They brought the worship of prosperity and wealth and weather, the sun god. They literally brought a statue of the sun god, his chariots and horses, into the entrance of the temple. Then they brought Baal, the worship of Baal, his articles, his his idols, and Ashtoreth into the temple. Key elements of worship of Baal and Ashtoreth were child sacrifice and prostitution, the male prostitutes who had sex with other men and women as part of the worship of Baal lived in the temple. Could you imagine? Elders and Pastor Marty came down and said, you know what, we're going to set up an altar, right, to Dagon out in the entrance, and we're going to have male shrine prostitutes sleeping with people, men and women, upstairs in the second deck, but don't worry, we're going to keep worshiping God in the main sanctuary. Could you imagine it? Then we've got this other one. They, they literally worship the stars. They set up altars to the star worship on the roof of the temple. Then just outside the city, just outside of Jerusalem, in the valley of Ben-Hanam, right outside the city, right? They set up altars to Dagon and Molech. And what they would do is superheat these bronze idols, place their babies in these superheated hands and literally kill their babies alive in the fire slowly till they would roll off into the fire just outside the city. They worshiped uh, astronomy, science, and education, things that all these sound good. They worship fertility. They worship prosperity. They worship, right? They didn't stop worshiping God. They just kept worshiping everybody else along with God. It'd be the same as a wife doing a great job, taking care of the house, taking care of the kids, having sex with her husband, but then bringing other men into the house to have sex with them also and saying it's all right. We wouldn't, no one would tolerate that. Utterly destroyed because they didn't worship enough. They worshiped false gods. They hedged. They diversified their worship. So God sent them into exile to these countries around and they got to worship all the gods you want for years. You can stay there if you want, but you can't follow me. So what about us, say? Marty talked about this before the Christmas, during the great I am statements with with, uh, Jesus. And he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, John 14, 6. If this is a compass azimuth right here, there's only one azimuth that gets you there, okay? If we're off azimuth, Jesus plus Jesus plus, Jesus plus this, Jesus plus that, we're off, we're off track, but it gets worse. If it's Jesus plus prosperity for worshiping our work, Jesus plus sex or our relationships or pornography or Jesus plus education even. Education's a good thing, 
But imagine, which would you rather have? Time, would you, if you want to tutor your son into, let's say, UVA, or tutor him in the Bible? That's a tough one. You only have a fixed amount of time. Which one's more important? What if we want to worship Jesus plus our power protection where we're at work? And again, maybe it costs us our job. Maybe it costs us a promotion to be identified with Jesus Christ or to be, to be set. But I tell you, what I see in my life is this, is that the 180-degree turn away from Jesus Christ aren't these other idols. It's me. It's putting me on the idol. It's me on the throne. It's worshiping me. But the crazy part is, if we get the correct altar, if we get Jesus Christ and no one else, here's the great part, 33. But seek first my kingdom, my righteousness, and I'll get, he wants, none of those things are bad by themselves. He wants to give us those things anyway. But we have to seek the correct priority and we have to seek the correct altar. Now, what's crazy is the reactions to, to an altered life, reactions to salvation are pretty, they're pretty disparate. They're not all the same. So we look at some of these people come there, we got remorse. So it says, but many of the older priests and Levites and the family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. Now, if you read some of the Christian scholars, they're like, they're weeping because they see that this is weak and, uh, uh, you know, not as nice, not as uh, elaborate a temple. That doesn't make sense. There is no temple. It's just the foundation. And guess what about the foundation? It's got to be laid in accordance with the Pentateuch. It's a very set. They have to lay the, old, the new foundation on the old foundation. The size of the temple wasn't any different. And they have no idea how big this thing's going to get, how big the, the courtyards are going to get. They have no idea how elaborate the decorations are going to be. It's just the foundation. But I'll tell you, this has only been 50 years. 50 years ago, these older men sat on this spot as kids, teenagers, young men, right? They saw, they knew firsthand all that led to the destruction of that temple. They saw firsthand the ravishing of Jerusalem. They saw their, their mothers and their sisters raped. They saw babies smashed against the wall at the head of streets. They saw the temple leveled. They went through the interior. They experienced the entirety, the totality of the exile, every bit of it. And all they knew the whole time was God's promise that they would eventually return. And it had happened. I got to tell you, who could hold it back at this point? right? Who, who could have held it in if you were alive? But then the other side, while many others shouted for joy, knowing which between the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because they made so much noise. So these are the people shouting for joy are the children that are born in the exile. They had never even seen Jerusalem, right? They only experienced a portion, what, a certain portion of the exile and trials of the exile. All they had was the promise that they would eventually return. In the same moment in Israel, we have people weeping out of remorse for the sin against God, weeping for the unnecessary suffering their sin caused, but also rejoicing <laughs> that God had forgiven them and that God had promised redemption and fulfilled his promise. That's pretty good, right? That sounds, I'd like some of that. But the weird part is not everybody's rejoicing, Right? Not everybody was happy about this because some, the people made so much noise and sound was heard far away. Some people were opposed. We're going to hear about that in the follow-on chapters. Some of them, I suspect, joined 
They're like, hey, man, they got something going on. I'm going to join. But the key part is everybody knew. If you were in around there, you heard something. And you had to make a decision based on what you heard. So this is interesting. I know firsthand the sin that separated me from God. And I've seen firsthand the unnecessary pain it caused me, it caused my wife, my kids, my ex-wife, that it caused my family. I've experienced firsthand separation. I've seen, I've been brought to God. I've seen his promise fulfilled in my life. And I've been restored in spite of my sins. Okay? Amen. When we come to Christ, when we sell out, some people are going to oppose us. Some people are going to join. But I'll tell you, the important thing is, everybody needs to know, right? It needs to be so loud that you can't stand near me without it. Yeah, get mad. That's fine. But someone may join. So we need, I'm, I'm begging us all to consider, how do we alter our lives? Bring it in front of Jesus Christ. Number two, how do we choose the correct, I need to stop serving me and stop trusting in Dallas. Dallas is pretty lame. Right? That was this guy. I don't bring much to the table, right? But God does. And then the last part is we've got to choose the correct altar. And again, some are going to join us, some are going to oppose us, but everybody's got to know. Okay? So when we look here, what I'd like you to do is take again five minutes once we close up here and think about a worrisome and anxious time during this. And I'd like you to say, during this, I prioritized what? I put like four things up there, right? Put them in order of how you prioritize them to deal with that difficult situation. If there's other things you did, put it in there. The key part is self-evaluation. And then what's, what is the, explain it, and is it good, is it bad? The altars. What gets the bulk of our worship, the bulk of our attention, the bulk of our time? I like it just real quick. Don't spend much time. First best guess, put the amount of hours per day, multiply by seven, that's your number of hours a week. When it comes to work, only do, count the work that's above your straight eight. We're told in the Bible that we're required to work, right? So in there, good to go? But only estimate the time that you spend at work above what you're required to do. And the last part is, what challenges one of your children, your wife, your coworker, someone that you mentor going through right now that you would advise them to alter their lives? Okay, so those are the questions. And I'll go ahead and close this in prayer and then we'll move on. Lord, thank you so much for this time. That Lord, we wouldn't just be hearers of the word. We wouldn't be like men who look in a mirror and turn away and forget what we look like when we walk away. But we'd be doers of the word. Please, God, be with us at our, during our table time. Be with us during our conversations. Help us to sell out for you and to choose you first. We love you, Lord, and we ask all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.